Hallelujah. Praise God. Worthy is His name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you open it up and turn to Mark chapter 11, please? Mark chapter 11. And uh, I guess I can turn there also. We'll be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at a number of verses uh, this, this afternoon. And the first one at which we will look is Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. Mark 11 and verse 25. We know that uh, the New Testament was written in a different language, primarily Greek. And uh, anybody in here speak Greek? Read Greek? Me either. And yet, a study of the Greek language can be helpful to us sometimes in understanding exactly what this New Testament that we read in English might uh, actually mean. It can give us depth of meaning. It can color meaning so that we have a greater understanding. And especially when we look at words, we can look at words and maybe the uh, etymology of that word, where that word came from, or uh, maybe the the context of that word when it's used in a secular sense in the first century, uh, that Greek word is used. Sometimes those things can be really helpful to us in understanding what the words in our Bible mean. Other times we can take that too far and maybe give them meanings that aren't really there. But I want you to think about a word to begin our lesson this morning, and that word is the New Testament word for worship. I want to thank Eric for leading us in worship. I was able to worship um, with a a lot of focus um, this evening, and so I appreciate him leading us in that. That's what we were doing, right? We were worshiping. Well, where does that word come from? What did that word mean originally to where it comes to mean what we think of it today? The New Testament word for worship, um, and we're going to actually talk about this more on Wednesday night, it comes from a word that means to kiss, or to kiss toward someone, or to kiss the hand of one. So you think about worship in the sense of you come before a ruler, they stick out their ring, right, and you kiss their hand, you're paying homage to them, you're worshiping him. That's, That's where that word came from. And frequently in a secular context, outside of the Bible, It was used to designate the custom of prostrating oneself before persons and kissing their feet or kissing the hem of their garment or kissing the ground. The Persians did this in the presence of their deified king. He's like a god, so we're going to treat him like one and worship him, falling prostrate. The Greeks did this uh, before things that they viewed as divine or things that they viewed as holy. They would be prostrate before and sometimes kiss toward. In the New Testament, it seems to often mean uh, kneeling or prostration to do homage to one, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. And so that's all taken from a, a couple of different Greek lexicons that define what these words mean in the ancient world. How is that helpful to us? Well, it's helpful to us because all of those definitions imply posture, that there's something we're doing with our body in order to to worship God. And that's not restrictive based on all the postures we see where people are worshiping in the New Testament. We don't have to fall prostrate uh, before God in order to worship Him. But I think it is helpful to think about our posture, what we're doing with our physical bodies in worship. And tonight I want to focus specifically on what we do with our posture when we go to God in prayer. And so tonight's lesson is entitled Proper Posture for Prayer. What is the proper posture for prayer? Man, I got through it three times before I messed up. The proper posture for prayer. 
Well, what does the Bible say? That's the question that we always try and ask, right? Um, and if you're visiting with us tonight, we're glad that you're here. We're so grateful for your presence. And I'll tell you, that's the question that we're always trying to ask on, on any topic that relates to who we are as Christians or what we ought to be doing spiritually, all things that pertain to life and godliness. We want to ask the question, what does the Bible say? Uh, yesterday, this uh, little slide was put on Facebook so people would know what the sermon was about tonight. And I got a text from one of my close preacher friends, and he said, Oh, cool, posture and prayer. He said, Are you going to talk about the four postures of prayer? And I wrote back, Ha, H-A, exclamation mark. I'm going to talk about the 12 postures of prayer. The 12 postures of prayer that we see in the Bible. And spoiler alert, Let's just go ahead and, and get this out in the open from the very beginning. There is a reason why proper is in quotation marks on this sermon slide. Because there is not a required proper posture. There's lots of different postures, at least 12, maybe more. And so what we're going to do tonight is give some passages and then ask some questions by way of application on what we should be doing in regard to our posture of prayer. So let's think about biblical postures of prayer. If you're there in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25, uh, coincidentally all of these verses are on the handout that are on the little um, stands on each side of the foyer table. And so if you'd like to go back and read some of the, the verses that we're not going to read tonight, you're more than welcome to do that, of course. Uh, we're only going to highlight a few. So we think about standing. Standing is something that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament for prayer. That's one of our traditions. Sometimes we stand for prayer, right? And in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25, Jesus says, And whatever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus just assumes that you're going to be standing sometimes while you're praying. We see in a number of places in the Old Testament that they actually sat down to pray together, that they were sitting uh, maybe by themselves or with others in order that they might pray to God. In the New Testament, the most common posture of prayer, if you want to say, okay, what's the one we see the most? It's actually kneeling. Kneeling is the most common posture of prayer. Look at a few verses from the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 22 we remember that Daniel did this three times a day, opened up his windows, he knelt down to pray to God. But we see this in the New Testament also, Luke chapter 22, verse 41, when Jesus is praying to his Father in the garden, what's his posture? Verse 41 of Luke 22, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. And then if we fast forward uh, beyond Jesus' crucifixion and burial and resurrection, we, we go to the church. What did early Christians normally do when they were praying? We'll go to Acts chapter 9 and verse 40. Acts chapter 9 and verse 40. Acts chapter 9 and verse 40. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and this is when ultimately he's going to raise Tabitha or Dorcas back to life. We go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 36. Acts chapter 20 and verse 36. Acts 
Here Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders whom he loves dearly. And in verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him uh, after he had prayed for all of them. Uh, One page over maybe in your Bible, Acts chapter 21 uh, and verse 3. uh, They're on their way to Jerusalem. And when we, Luke says, had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Before they got on the boat, Uh, everybody's there together and what did they all do together Uh, apparently everybody knelt down so that they might pray together uh, for one another if you turn to Ephesians chapter 3 that should actually be Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 Paul says of himself uh, in a book with many prayers and that talks about prayer he says in verse 14 of Ephesians 3 for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there were any posture that we were going to enforce and say, hey, you're a New Testament Christian, you want to pray like first century Christians prayed, if there were any posture we were going to say that most imitates what they did, it's this one. To kneel in prayer is what they did the most. Um, Have you done that? Have you ever done that before, knelt in prayer maybe beside the edge of your bed, maybe uh, even in your office when nobody's there and you can shut the door. Uh, There's something to being on your knees, I think, as you go to your Father in heaven in prayer. And we know that there are uh, Christian traditions, like in the Catholic Church, uh, where they have those little things that come out from the pew because they actually get down on their knees to kneel uh, as they pray. So kneeling is the most common. But again, that's not all that we see in the Bible. We see bowing down, uh, bowing down, prostrate perhaps, uh, a couple of different places uh, in the uh, Old Testament. Lying down, uh, I do that every night, right? I pray to God while I'm lying down, sometimes on my back, sometimes on my face, but I'm lying down, praying to God. We see that in the Old Testament. This idea of falling on one's face, again, this is maybe more prostrate. Maybe this uh, denotes something a little bit different in regard to our attitude and what's going on and what the prayer is about, that I'm going to fall down on my face before God. If you turn to uh, Matthew 26, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 39. We know that Jesus prayed multiple times in the garden. We know that he knelt. What else did he do? Verse 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Okay, so we see these six. We're halfway home. Uh, Number seven, with hands spread Uh, upwards and we're not sure exactly what that looked like we see this a ton in the Old Testament that they were spreading out their hands in some way maybe like this Uh, in the New Testament we see lifting hands although that is more associated with the Old Testament in 1st Timothy chapter 2 in verse 8 
you want to turn over there, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, I desire that men pray everywhere. Uh, he's already said here that they need to be praying, making supplication and intercessions and giving of thanks for all men, for those in authority. He's talking about all the things that they need to be praying for. And he says, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Um, and so that's one of the places to which we would turn uh, where people raise hands in prayer today. Uh, again, we see other examples. If we go to Luke chapter 18, we see a couple of examples there. Turn to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, beginning back in verse 10 and following, we see someone praying insincerely who is standing in order to pray. Uh, that would be the Pharisee who comes before God. He looks up into heaven. He's standing up. And he prays, but, but his prayer is not heard by God. But it shows the uh, posture that, that would have been common in that time. That's found there in verse 11. But if we drop down a little further, down to verse 13, it says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We, we imagine that, beating his breast because he's in such anguish over his sin. And it's not just that he beat his breast. Of course, he has downcast eyes. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. This is the idea of the bowed head as he's praying to God. Um, and we know that others looked up into heaven. We see that in John chapter 17, for example, looking up toward the heavens or toward heaven. And so you don't have to have your head down. You can have your head up. Uh, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. You can even look at the guy praying when they're up here at the microphone. You can even do that, right? So your eyes can be down, your eyes can be up. Um, but there's something else that I want us to notice here on number 12. Um, there's a few others that I thought about, including you know, sackcloth and ashes, things like that. Um, but there are, there are at least two examples, and probably more, where we see no noticeable posture while somebody is praying. Now, obviously, there are lots and lots of occasions of prayers in the Bible or where it describes somebody praying in the Bible and the text doesn't mention their posture at all. Uh, lots and lots of examples of that. But that's not really what I'm talking about with this last one. I'm talking about examples here where people were praying and the other people around them didn't know that they were praying. Because there was no noticeable posture that says, oh, obviously this man or woman is praying. Um, let me look at these examples with you. 1 Samuel chapter 1, this is the example of Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and this is an answered prayer of a sincere woman. And God hears her prayer. But if we look at the prayer itself, it's pretty obvious that there's no noticeable, obvious posture that she's taking in order to have this prayer. Verse 10, remember Hannah didn't have any children. She desires children. And in verse 10, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. We're told earlier that Eli was there at the doorpost of the, the tabernacle of meeting. So he's there kind of lurking, I guess, in the doorway. And he sees this lady over there and she's in some sort of distress. And she, he sees her lips moving. And her lips are moving. And so what is the assumption that he makes? Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Now here's my question. If she was like this... Or like this, I could go through the rest of them, right? If she had a noticeable posture of prayer, would he have thought that? No. He would have said, oh, this lady's here and she's praying. It's clear that there was no noticeable posture. And the point I want to make with that is we're going to talk about why we should have posture and what posture is good for. But there is no posture that we have to enforce as Christians, that this is the way you have to pray. Um, And I hope that's clear to us. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 4, we see the same thing there. Nehemiah is before the king. Um, He asks, hey, what's wrong with you? And it says that he prayed. Uh, He's right there in front of the king. The king didn't know that he prayed on that occasion, but he says a prayer to God and then he answers the king. And so my question uh, with this last one here, number 12, if there was some required posture, and it may be not required, but we say, well, this is really what you ought to be doing, that we have to do or should do, then how could we possibly fulfill the command that we talked about just a few weeks ago to pray without ceasing? How could we do that if I have to strike up some formal posture every time I go into prayer? We talked a few weeks ago, if you weren't here for that lesson, about the idea of uh, our inner monologue and our thoughts, right? And maybe we've got, maybe you've got one voice in your head, maybe you've got multiple voices in your head, and I've had some interesting discussions with some of you uh, about that. But turning that inner monologue in our head with our thoughts, turning that into a dialogue, inviting God into those thoughts that God is going to be a part of this. And and my life, my day is filled with running prayer to God. And when I think about others, I'm going to be praying to God. When I think about what I need to do, I'm going to be praying to God with, with some of those things. And if I had to strike up a posture, it'd make it very, very difficult for us to fulfill that command. We should be praying to God all the time with all different kinds of postures. We should pray to God like this when we're driving. We should pray to God like this when we're working out. We should pray to God like this when we're getting ready in the morning. We should pray to God all the time. And so let's think about this idea of posture specifically. Now, I hope I've made that point clear. Let's see if we can make the other side of the point, okay? So let's answer some questions about this that might be helpful to us. I think a lot of times this idea of posture of prayer comes up with the idea of of lifting hands in prayer. So let's some some questions to consider, not just about that, but let's let's first think about what does lifting hands or lifting holy hands look like? Um, Paul didn't draw a picture. Well, he might have, but we don't have the autograph of what he wrote to Timothy to say this is what that looks like. Does that mean it looks like this, like this, like this, maybe? 
what is this? This is the universal symbol for somebody praying. What is this? Lifting hands. Lifting hands, right? What is this? That's lifting hands. And so when we think about lifting hands, we don't have to think about this, right? Um, That is something that we're doing, a posture that we're taking to help us in what we're doing to pray to God. My question is, where is the biblical emphasis when we think about this idea of lifting hands? In 1 Timothy, he says that we should lift what kind of hands? Holy hands. Holy hands is what we should be lifting. And I think that's where the emphasis is. If we go to James chapter 4 and verse 8, James chapter 4 and verse 8, in talking about our devotion to God and how God deserves and demands priority in our life, total devotion, notice what he says in verse 7 and 8. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now this is an image there, right? It's not that we're all going to the bathroom so that we can wash our hands. The idea is the things that we do in our life, those things need to be cleansed and holy. I need to come before God with with a holy heart so that I can raise holy hands to him and I believe that's where the biblical emphasis is not on the hands not on the posture but on the condition of my heart when I come before God in prayer Uh, maybe an example from our culture uh, that would illustrate this idea and again I want to be careful not to read anybody's heart on this but maybe an example from our culture would be beating the breast beating the chest I saw lots of chest beating yesterday on TV, and I saw lots of chest beating today, earlier today on TV, in the, in the context of prayer. You know what it looked like? That's beating the breast and acknowledging God, right? But who was that about? Was it about God? That's a proper posture for prayer. And again, I can't read anybody's heart, but on one occasion, after an interception, beat the breast, point to the sky, is that about me or is that about God? My posture can be perfect, exactly right. But if my heart doesn't match that posture, it does me no good. And maybe we should take a moment to consider the cultural background and implications of of this idea of all of these postures of prayer, these 12 that we've talked about, or at least the 11 where there is specific posture. What is the cultural background and implications of that? Uh, As an example, we might consider uh, the command that's given in Scripture to greet one another with a holy kiss. I came in a moment ago, I talked to lots of y'all, I said hi to lots of y'all, not a single person kissed me, Um, not even Brooklyn, not even my wife, Stephanie, nobody kissed me, right? Well, did we not fulfill that command? I mean, look in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 13, look at Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, where is the emphasis on that command? Is it on the kiss or is it on the greeting? of one another with love and appreciation 
and brotherhood. Is the emphasis being placed on the physical action? Is the command given emphasizing the kiss or the holiness of the greeting that you have toward a brother or sister in Christ? I would suggest greet one another with a holy handshake would be just as appropriate as what we see here is greet one another with a holy kiss. And we know that because different greetings are mentioned throughout the Bible. And it appears that a kiss was a common greeting between close acquaintances in the culture of New Testament times. And, and that's still practiced in a lot of places today in Europe, even other parts of the United States that have different cultures. You come up to somebody, maybe you hug them, and you kiss on this side, and you kiss on that side, right? They're greeting one another, and they're using a kiss in order to have that greeting. We think about Judas, and, and maybe... Uh, at first glance, it's odd to us that he says, the one that I kiss, he's the one you need to seize him. But again, this would have been a common greeting in the ancient time. And so in Matthew chapter 26, when he comes up and he greets him, remember, he says, greetings, hail, rabbi, or teacher, and then he kissed him. He's greeting him, and he's using all the right words, using the right action, but where was his heart? His heart was not holy in that greeting. In this particular case, none of us would have a problem stating that Judas's greeting was not done in holiness. He greeted Christ with impure motives, an unholy mind and spirit, even though the physical action would have been acceptable in and of itself. And so we need to make sure that we're putting the right emphasis on the right things. And so I ask for... For our congregation, I can't speak for other churches or other congregations in the Lord's Church. Um, you've never heard me from this pulpit encourage us in our worship or in our prayer to lift holy hands. Why not? Why don't we encourage lifting hands? I would suggest it's very much for the same reason we don't encourage holy kisses. It's not our culture. I mean, let's be honest. I'm more down with holy kisses than most of y'all. Um, that's that's just the reality. Like every time I saw my grandmother um, on my dad's side, you know how she greeted me? Audibly. Mwah! 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 And my aunts who are still living, when they see me, I go up to Lindale, how do they greet me? Reagan! Mwah! 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 So I'm, I'm used to that. Let's go. If we want to greet each other with holy kisses. But we understand that's not where the emphasis is, Right? It's on our attitude when we greet one another and making sure that it's holy when we do that. Now, specifically, as we think about lifting hands, culturally, the posture of lifting hands in worship was made popular in our time and culture primarily by charismatic groups and some of whom wrongly take it to be an indication of a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why my hands go up is because I've received the Holy Spirit. It has that connotation in our culture of false worship. And even some of my friends who uh, believe in that kind of working of the Holy Spirit today, who are in these kinds of groups, even they would admit some people do that and fake that so that other people will think that they're right and everything's good because the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so in our culture, this lifting of hands is sometimes associated with false worship. And I think that's why, uh, in part, we have discouraged it. But I remind us, remind all of us, 
that lifting hands is not wrong in and of itself. So why would we want to encourage other postures um, than the postures that we normally take? Uh, Why would we want to encourage other postures, uh, some positive reasons why we might want to do that? Our attitude, our heart, our mind, and the holiness of our relationship with God is most important when we come before Him in worship, when we come before Him in prayer. But our posture can be very helpful. It can be a great aid to us in our mind, in our heart, in our attitude. We are, after all, spiritual beings. But we are in physical bodies. And we live in a physical world. And that's the reality. And it's not as though that what we do in our bodies don't matter. I mean, that's, that's a false teaching in and of itself, isn't it? Our bodies do matter. The Gnostics said, hey, do whatever you want to do with your body because only your spirit matters. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that both our spirit and our bodies belong to whom? They belong to God. And we are supposed to glorify God in our spirit and in our body. And so there is this intersection between the physical posture that we take and the influence, the impact that that can have on our heart. Posture is important. And that's seen, I think, just in the mere fact that there are all these different postures that we see in our Bibles, right? That that faithful men and women of God took different postures when they came to God in prayer. Um, I'm always a little leery about adding something at the last minute. Um, And so if this uh, falls flat, just forgive me and pretend like I didn't say it, okay? Um, But Eric, when he was up here leading songs, he said something that I thought was really powerful that applies to what we're talking about. Beautiful music, he said, enhances the words that we sing. Is that true? Absolutely. Now, beautiful music can sometimes be distracting, But if our heart is right, if our heart is in the right place, beautiful music can reach us and touch our heart as we think about the words that we're singing to God. Now, other music, non-beautiful music might be distracting, or maybe the music is just neutral. We know the words are what is most important. And we also know that there is no set pattern for the kind of music that we have to use in our worship to God in the sense of what the tune is like or those sorts of things. And yet we know that that can enhance our worship, especially when that music perfectly matches the words. And so I worship my God and I feel those things deeply because of the power of that music. Well... Can our posture in prayer do something very similar? We don't have to have the right kind of posture to match. But when we do, it can be very helpful to our hearts. What are we trying to do when we pray? What are we trying to do? Now, God's doing lots of stuff through prayer. But what are we doing when we pray? We're expressing our heart, aren't we? What's in our heart, our feelings, our needs, our emotions... We're expressing our supplications, our questions to God. We're expressing those things that that we need in a very specific sort of way. A lot of times we're expressing our thanksgiving to God, and we should be doing that, thanking Him, thanking Him for what He's done, thanking Him for who He is. We might be expressing our confession 
and repentance before God, our abject poverty that we're sinners and we need His grace. And certainly prayer, specifically in the New Testament, is an expression of our reliance on and faith in God. Think about those five things. Maybe, maybe certain postures are more helpful for certain kinds of prayers. Have you ever thought about that? When I have sinned, when I have sinned and I need to go before God in prayer, A lot of times I can't lift my eyes to heaven. And there have been times where I've fallen on my face. There have been times when I've knelt. There have been times when I was laying in bed and I turned over the other way to lay on my face. And there have been times in in moments of great thanksgiving to my God where a smile is on my face and my eyes are open and I look toward the heavens. And the posture is a reflection of the prayer. The posture is an enhancement of the prayer. It can lead our heart down the right path in prayer or it can be an outward reflection of where our heart already is. But let me maybe emphasize this point in regard to that idea. What do you do in private? Versus what do you do in public? I would suggest if you want to try different postures of prayer, the place to do that, at least, at the very least at first, is to try those different postures in private. That is a good testing ground because you know that you're not doing that for an impure motive. And we know how important our motives are in prayer. One more verse. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me, Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, Jesus says, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray. Oh, that the verse ended there. For they love to pray standing. Anything wrong with that posture? No. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They have their reward that they have been seen by men. But you, when you pray... Go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, it's interesting to me uh, in going through this study that Jesus says, here's the location where you should be praying this private prayer. This is not applying to public prayers. I want you to understand that. But when you go and pray a private prayer, it's not something that you flaunt before everybody else. And he does not specify any posture, any posture. He just says, go into your room if you want to pray, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And um, I've got to be careful not to violate the verses that I've just read, but I've tried a lot of these postures that we've talked about. I've tried a lot of those things in private for different reasons at different times to focus my mind and to express my heart. But it all comes back to this question. Where should the focus of our worship and where should the focus of our prayers be placed? Um, Where? On me? Several of you did this. That's exactly right. 
our focus should be on God. And as soon as we start doing something to be seen by men or to make a point or to show how spiritual or progressive or non-traditional we are or whatever, it ceases to be for and about God and it becomes for and about us. And I'm not making any accusations with that. I'm just emphasizing the point that Jesus is making here. Because I've resolved I'm not going to judge another based on their posture. I don't see into their heart. I don't know their heart. And if they take a different posture than me, that's fine. I'm just not going to get that worked up about it. But I also don't want anyone to feel pressured into doing something because others are doing it or aren't doing it. And I don't want anyone to be distracted as they worship either. And if I have to change or restrict my public posture in order to achieve that, so be it. Because posture is important. We just spent a whole lesson on it. Posture is important, but the heart, the heart is what matters to God. And so often we as men, we want to look at the outward appearance. But it is God who sees the heart. And he sees our heart as well. And so that's what should matter most to us in prayer and in all of our worship. Um, I appreciate your good attention tonight as we consider these things. And again, we want to answer these things from the Bible. The Bible gives us direction on all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the Bible gives us direction on how to come and be right with God. If you're willing to come and con confess Jesus as the Christ, repent of your sins, putting off that old man of sin, if you're willing to go down into a watery grave of baptism, then you can rise to walk in newness of life, being made pure, being made holy. And if there is sin in your life that has separated you from your God, then we have patterns from the New Testament about that as well, that we should confess our faults to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. And so if you need to follow either one of those patterns tonight, come now, while together we stand and while we sing. <coughs>